what would you tell a seven-year-old kid who said, I, I, I have to, I had to throw up that pizza because I was afraid I was going to gain weight. What would you say to her? And they look at you like, you know, and they realize when they come up with that answer, what would I say to her? You say, okay, we're going to talk about why you can't say that to yourself. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. You know, sometimes I just have to pinch myself when I realize the impact that our guests have had on so many professionals and recovered individuals. Today, we're talking with Carolyn Coston, author, speaker, full-on pioneer in the field, yet also humble and reachable. I mean, did you know that when she's training coaches that she listens to every single session? She expects those of us doing the work within eating disorders to invest time in training. And she talks about her previous career as a teacher and school counselor and how recovered coaches and therapists can be their best. So if you are in any of those settings, please listen. One of my favorite analogies she uses is comparing recovery from an eating disorder to learning to play the violin. You think it's so hard. It's so hard. They're screeching sounds and nobody wants to be in the room with you but it does get better and a listener comment from SAT as a newer dietitian who often feels thrown into the world of eating disorders this podcast has been a place to learn and process information hearing others experiences in some ways validates my own and my clients keep up the good work and I will say same back to you SAT we appreciate your comment so please do take a moment to rate, review, and comment and share this podcast with others. A typical disclaimer in this podcast, we bring in medical, nutrition, and therapy professionals who share their passions, and that's to pique your interest in available modalities for the field of eating disorders. This show is intended to inform and educate. It is not a substitute for the professional training and supervision required to specialize in the treatment of eating disorders, nor is it a substitute for medical, nutritional, or psychological advice from a professional or specialist. Enjoy. Good morning, Carolyn Costin, and welcome to the Seasoned RD podcast. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. We'll ease you into things with some icebreakers then. So, mountains or beach? Oh, that's really hard because living here where I live right now, I have the mountains that way and I have the beach that way and I'm right there, you know. But I guess ultimately I would, if I had to choose, I'd probably say beach. Beach, okay. You know, that makes California sense. girl, you know, yeah. or for boyfriends in high school, you know. <laughs> so. Okay. And then breakfast or dinner? Oh, dinner. Dinner. I was quick. Sure. Because it's more social, you know. There's something about dinners. I mean, I get up and immediately eat breakfast. 
but I'm just that way where my husband hangs around, has coffee, you know, waits for a couple hours. But I think dinner is, I feel something about the making of it and planning and, and friends, you know, community. For sure. All right. Last icebreaker, audiobook or paper book? Paper. That was fast too. Paper. Audio is hard. I can get distracted by someone's voice. Maybe as a therapist, I'm thinking about that person. Where are they sitting? You know, I, I, when a human is in it like that, it can take me off. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I have to come back to what they're talking about. So for sure. Yeah. yeah. And you are therapist licensed. You have so many titles, but can you take us back to a board exam or licensure exam many years ago? Do you have a story about that? Or what do you remember about oh, that day? Oh. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that question, but I have a story. When I took my license to be a marriage family therapist, and that's been my main professional license. I mean, I'm a teacher and, and was a high school counselor, but when I took that course, I studied, I learned so much. And, you know, they only are going to ask you maybe one 25th of what's in your brain and what you studied. I literally felt like I was walking around grabbing people and saying, do you want to know what I know? <laughs> and telling them stuff, you know, because I, I felt like I had so much knowledge and I wasn't asked to share. So, <laughs> and that's not going to surprise you. Probably, you know, anyone who's heard me speak, I, I, someone says you can speak for, you know, we have an hour slot. I'm like, oh no, that's stressful. Give me three hours. I'm happy. You know, <laughs> exactly. And this, if this is only like a 30, 40 minute thing. So we'll, yeah, we'll get to the point. Interview, so it's a little different. <laughs> that's you know? true. I love it. You had so much in your head. And I'm guessing that the questions that they asked on that licensure exam were not even ones that were, I've just heard so many people say, not they're just, pertinent. yeah, not that pertinent. It's just yeah. to pass. Yeah. In right. Life. We're talking 1979. So well, we're see, talking- this is what I was going to ask. Was it paper <laughs> and pencil? It wouldn't have been computer. Yeah. Right. Right. And And so you can see, I had so much to say. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. All right. Well, how, I'm going to bring you back. When, how did you get into the field of therapy? You mentioned that you have, you're an educator, you're a school counselor, but therapy and eating disorders as a field. Well, I became a therapist to treat adolescents because I was a high school teacher and I saw so many problems. And I, when I started going, I went back to school in psychology, not knowing anything about an MFT license. I had heard of psychiatrists before, but I didn't really know about therapists. And, and I was taking psychology classes to help me, you know, learn and be a better teacher. And then I, I realized someone told me there is this license, you know, this MFT license. So I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. But I was going to be a therapist for troubled youth. But when I got my license and I started practicing, I had already recovered from anorexia nervosa. And the principal of the school where I was teaching said, you know, there's this girl in the high school across town who has that thing you had. That's what exactly what he said. And I think you could help her. And honestly, my first thought was like this, you know, like, I, I don't know. 
But I saw her and honestly, it was a little bit of a mind meld. You know, I asked questions that nobody had ever asked her. And because I was right into the, like people were doing psychotherapy with her and I basically was doing CBT because I was saying, what are your thoughts and what foods do you eat? And do you throw up any, you know, I was just, I was just going for it. And she got better. And then her mom was at a hairdresser salon talking to somebody. And she said, well, my daughter, blah, blah, blah. And she said, oh, there's this therapist who, and that started. And, you know, it wasn't until what the mid 1980s when Karen Carpenter was on the cover of, I think time magazine. And all of a sudden people were going, I know someone who treats that. So I just already had a practice by then, you know, right time, right place. And I was treating everybody. I'm like, I recovered from this. And if I can, so can you, it didn't, it wasn't even a question. It didn't even cross my mind that maybe people will always be recovering. And a few people were in the, that I ran into were in the 12 step had, had stumbled into 12 step meetings and they were coming to me saying, you know, I've heard that I'll always it's be managing this for the rest of my life. And I was like, I don't think so. Or I was taught that I have to admit that I'm powerless over food. And I went, that seems odd to me. I don't Mm. you and there's food. You can't possibly be powerless over food. So people were seeing me by that point for all kinds of eating disorders, including binge eating disorder. And because once you get known as an eating disorder therapist, the whole spectrum, you know, starts to come because they're looking for people who specialize, you know, so they create a name for myself. You create a name for yourself. And I mean, part of this podcast is people from grad school all the way to highly seasoned, whatever you mentioned. There was a girl who had what you had. People weren't even calling it anorexia nervosa. Binge eating disorder didn't come out as an official diagnosis until 2013. Bulimia nervosa. So I think bulimia nervosa was like 85 or something. Right. You said 79. So yeah, you were definitely pioneer in this field. And you started, why the, no. You kind of, nobody can see what you did, but you said you crossed like, no, I'm not. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. That's true. You can't see me. I, I was resistant to take that first client because I thought, what if I, if there was a time in my recovery where I was getting better and there weren't any therapists. I mean, dietitian was, you know, the person behind the cafeteria line, you know, with the hairnet serving me food, you know, I mean, I, I, there wasn't anybody to see and I'm, I'm, you know, struggling and trying to get better. And that's a whole nother story. But right before I had a relapse, when I read a book, I read, I, or an article, I read something about somebody who had an eating disorder and how much weight she had lost. And I had a relapse and it was only lasted about two weeks, but I got triggered. So I felt like, oh, what if I see her and I feel pulled or I feel competitive or I feel, I was a little worried, but it was farther down the road and I decided to try it. And I didn't feel any of that at all. I felt like we're going to help you get over it. And that's when I knew she felt understood and not shamed and all that. So I knew it was a calling then. Ah, that is incredible. Because then this is maybe one of the roots of why we try to help folks with, with hearing 
about weight loss or numbers or comparisons because it can be triggering. Yeah. And I still teach. I mean, right now, as you know, I'm training coaches, but for 35 years, I trained therapists and, and I, I, it's always, and I was, and I'm known for hiring recovered therapists and all that. But to me, I mean, you have to know how to use your lived experience. It it can be an asset or a liability when you're working with clients. So people have to be trained to know what's the best way to use it. And one of those ways is never talk about how bad you were. Never talk about, you know, how much weight you lost or how many laxatives you took or how many miles you ran. You can say, I suffered a lot and I was a runner and I ran too much, but the focus has to be on how did you get over that? How did you get better? What steps Mm. did you take? What did you tell yourself? How did you talk back to the eating disorder self? Those kind of things. Because otherwise, and and also not to share anything because you want to share it, only share it when it's relevant to that particular client. So if there's a client who doesn't have any problems with laxatives, why would you bring up your laxative abuse? You know, Right, right. So that's something that dietitians aren't taught is that self-disclosure piece. And, and do your coaches hear about that throughout their program too? Yeah, there's a track. Yeah. So in the very beginning, when someone signs up to be a coach, they can check the, the, if they want to do the recovered track and there are different questions for that. And then I'm alerted to that. And then in the supervision that's used in terms of every coach has to go through an internship. And in the internship, they have to see people for free. And believe it or not, you probably will believe it, knowing what little you know about me. I listen to every single session so that I can guide. If I need to, I'll get on on and have a joint session so I can guide how they how they're staying in the lines, you know, not going into the dietitian therapy. I mean, not going into the dietitian area or the therapist area, how they stay in their lane. And also how they appropriately use their lived experience. As you know, I think that it's hugely important to have people who have recovered be exposed to people who are suffering because I think it provides hope and motivation and, and all this stuff. But I think they have to be trained. I just, you know, that and that's been a problem in the field is that, you know, there's been sober coaches and life coaches and all kinds of coaches, but not eating disorder. And I think people were really afraid that people with lived experience would start working too soon, not be trained. Mm-hmm. And and so that's why I started the certification program. Like, yeah. Who knew? who knew? It just, after I sold Montanito, I, 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 I knew there was this gap and I just, I, why did I take it on? I don't know. Yeah, I love it though. I mean, I do, I run some supervision groups and somebody asked about coach, you know, do you know of any coaches? I said, get onto Carolyn's website and there's a, a list of interns and certified coaches. Yeah. And I hope, I think it's becoming more accepted. I feel proud that when therapists and dietitians find out I'm the one who's doing the training. I think they feel a little more reassured. The training takes about, there's 12 modules. It's designed to do a module a month. So it's long. People don't sign up for this if they don't want to have rigorous training. But I think that's what it takes to get to a point where lived experience is utilized and accepted. And, And also I go back and forth by saying lived experience and say, and say recovered, because for me, it is really important to me that people can say they are recovered 
not recovering or in recovery, because I think that's too vague. I have a definition of it. They have to say they meet that definition. They have to get a letter of recommendation to begin the course, and they have to be recovered for two years. And when I ran Montanito, I learned that, and, and Montanito was very successful using people who are recovered, but I had them, what's the word, declare that they were recovered for two years. You know, you can't ask, are you recovered? But they would come to me saying, because they would know I was open about it. And once they said, then I would ask questions about it. And one of them is, and I learned pretty quickly that we needed two years because a lot can happen. Someone can think they're recovered, but like I did. And I told you I had a relapse when I was first getting well. I really think that once you have two years go by, there's a lot of stressors that happen. Your boyfriend breaks up with you, you get in a car accident, you have your your family pet die. And if you don't go back to the eating disorder in those two years, that seems to me, okay, you're on your way. Some people get cross about it when I make them wait. But the nice thing is I've had a lot of applicants who say, oh, I've only been a year, but I really think I'm ready. They, they're on, they've been honest about it. It seems, you know, that's so good. Yeah. I'm really, I, your experience with this and the the reason that you chose two years, I'm sure, is is loaded with things. I watched you at a Renfrew conference with Beth McGilley and Mark talking about oh, recovery. Yeah. And yeah, and yeah. that was a great, that room was packed. Like yeah, it was especially poignant because Mark had never openly talked about it before. And he had been working in the field for a while and finally just felt inauthentic, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's what I think. I tell people, I'm doing a, a talk in Sydney coming up and I'm talking about coaching. And one of the things that I say is, look, about being recovered, it when people were saying, you tell people, I mean, you really shouldn't disclose that. I thought, if I got hit by lightning and a client came to see me and she had gotten hit by lightning... <laughs> Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't be able to hold, why should I hold it in? And, mm -hmm. and this felt the same way. I mean, when I started, you know, it wasn't, cer certainly it felt not as prevalent mm -hmm. and, and there was no way I wasn't going to share it. And now we have groups for recovery professionals and recovery. And so it's, it's easier to, to say yes. Now, do you have, you have a recovered track, but also. And so I would say. Something along the lines of 95% are recovered. Okay. The it. other 5% are people who, like nurses, some therapists who say, I just want more skills to work mm -hmm. with these and where do I get that? Some are mothers uh, of, pe of people. And, and I do a, a, a long interview. If I get a mom who, I haven't had a dad yet apply, but if I get a mom who wants to be a coach, I really do a good screening. I want, they, they, it's so funny. I have them get permission from their daughter because family first. And I, I, I have, I've been around long enough to know that sometimes daughters will be upset if their moms are going off to do this thing with eating disorders, especially if they're still struggling, which I usually say, wait till your daughter gets well, you know, but I ask them to get permission from their daughters, which is a little hard. I mean, some moms say, my daughter, I have to get her. Why should I get permission from her? And I say, you'll thank me later, you know, because you just have to be careful not to blend. And, and if it's too personal and what if she takes a bad turn when you're in the course, it's just not a good idea. But I do have moms 
who are doing really well. And in the supervision, what I help them do is because the supervision and the internship can be tailored to specifics, how they can help other parents. Awesome. There's so much with the whole coaching and, and the recovery track. I also want Abby to talk to you about the keys, the eight keys, the books that she's been using, but I, I don't want to lose the whole recovered. That's something that comes up in supervision too, is wounded <laughs> healers that are, yeah. that are not recovered and, and what do supervisors do about that? And so that's a, that's a whole nother topic. Yeah. Um, you just have to have me back. <laughs> I think I will. You're, <laughs> we are thrilled. As you can imagine, I have had professionals contact me because they felt safe contacting me saying I'm in trouble. And what do you do with that? I mean, they deserve a high regard, right? And That's they right. deserve to have help. Mm-hmm. So that, but that, that'll take us down a whole nother path. That's what it sure. will. And w- look, I was looking back at our emails and it's been since March that we've been trying. So getting you back on here is I'm just not going to hold my breath, but so we'll take this time. Okay. I can do it. okay. So, so the eight keys. So good. As a new dietitian, there's so much to learn. I mean, as a new professional anywhere, there's so much to learn. And sometimes I just need a little extra guidance. And when, even if there's like lulls in an appointment or something like that, I never hesitate to, okay, let's go, let's start going through the eight keys. Like this is going to really guide us. So I first want to ask you if you have any tips or how you would really like someone to use the eight keys, I'm using the workbook. So what I've been doing is reading like part of the passage to the patient. And then we go through the questions together. I ask them the questions and that's how we've been doing that. But is there an ideal way you would like someone to use it? And then I next want to ask you about keys three and five, because they kind of go back and forth with each other, but we'll start with the first one. I I don't think there's an ideal way because sometimes you'll meet a client and you feel like I don't have to go through the motivation key one because they feel really motivated to me. And so I'm going to just get started. I will say that I think uh, key two is foundational because I feel like if you, I think key two and key five are the, or the, the strongest foundations of the book. And I think that because my philosophy about how people get well is that we help them strengthen their healthy part that's in there. We don't take it away. The battle is not between us and them. The battle is between them and them. They have a part of them that wants to get better and a part of them that keeps doing this behavior. And and until I think they really get that, you have the power in you. The eating disorder can't be more powerful than you. You give it its power. That seems foundational. So I try to get that solidified before I do the other part. So I will say that. I'm going to interject real quick on key two. I want to tell people if they're not, if they don't have it in front of them, it's your healthy self will heal your eating disorder self. And it's the whole thing about getting them in dialogue with the part of them. Let's say they come to you and say, I I really have to stop this binging, blah, blah, blah. And then they come into the next session and talk about the, the binging they've been doing. So you say, so there's a part of you when you're in here, you can access the part of you that wants to stop. Where, where does that part of you go at night when you go in these binges? We have to have access to that part and you have to start 
getting stronger, the part of you that wants to stop, we have to make it stronger. And that means getting into dialogue with that part of self, talking back to it and all that. To me, that's fundamental and foundational. And and, and also we talk about integrating those two parts instead of getting rid of it. And that's a little tricky, but I would say there's a relief that drops. There's a shield that comes down because when people come to you and you're going to take something away that obviously they're doing because it's doing something for them. Obviously, there's cognitive dissonance about giving up this thing or they'd be able to do it. So I just say, look, we're going to integrate. So you're not a split part anymore. You don't feed your kids different than you would feed yourself. If you had a friend come over, would you do to them with food what you do to yourself? No. So we're going to integrate those two parts. We're just going to get rid of the behaviors that the eating disorder self does because your healthy self will then learn how to take care of you and, you know, meet your needs and, and all that. All right, we're going to take a quick break to recognize our sponsor. And you all know that I'm not going to accept sponsorship from someone I don't believe in. Within Health, I believe, is the future of eating disorders care. And I know that it can make a difference in those who can't travel to the larger cities where treatment's available. So Within Health provides a comprehensive, personalized, and virtual treatment option for those suffering from eating disorders. Built on a tech-enabled and digitally native platform, Within brings full multidisciplinary teams, remote patient monitoring, and get this, food delivery and aftercare, all into the home, all of this to increase access, improve outcomes, and promote healing. Within offers virtual PHP and IOP, so partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient programs of levels of care, and depending on each individual client's needs and progress. So all scheduling is flexible and determined on an individual basis. Within treats ages 13 and up and all genders. Thank you, Within. I think the dialogue section is really helpful in you talk about in the book, just don't let those thoughts just sit there. You have to respond to or respond to it with your healthy self. And when you start doing that, when you're practicing it with a patient, they're like, I don't know how to respond to this. Like they can't even tap into the healthy self. And once you get going, it's like magical. Yeah, they can't tap into it. So you can do a role play and you can play the healthy self. Or like I said a few minutes ago, you can say, what would you tell a seven-year-old kid who said, I, 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 have to, I had to throw up that pizza because I was afraid I was going to gain weight? What would you say to her? And they look at you like, you know, and they realize when they come up with that answer, what would I say to her? You say, okay, we're going to talk about why you can't say that to yourself, you know? Because yeah. people have it in there. They just can't bring it out for themselves, you know? Right. So, so the other, I said the other foundational part is key five. And I'm so interested in what you think as dietitians of key five, because key five is, is about the food. And you mentioned briefly, key three says it's not about the food and key five is it is too about the food. So mm-hmm. we'll talk about that in a minute, but key five is really where I just say, you know, you can do all this work, you can have insight, you can heal underlying issues, but if you don't change your relationship with food, you don't get over an eating disorder, That period. I mean, you have to change your relationship, whatever you're doing with food, whatever's dysfunctional or disordered. And, and so there's a lot of things in that about what are your food rules and having people write down their food rules 
And then a lot of questions about the rules. How'd you come up with this rule? Would you make other people follow this rule? What evidence do you have for what will happen to you if you stop following this rule? All that. There's also some stuff about food logs, just to get a sense. I know people don't like all the time writing all the time about what they're eating and they say it's triggering. And what, what I generally say is, look, I just need to get a, a sense. I need to get a baseline. I need to see what you're doing or the coaches need to see what you're doing. And then let's look at it. And what would you like to do different? Here's what you're doing. What would you like to do different? And then there's a the whole conscious eating quiz that I actually came up with myself, which I think is fascinating. You know, I tried it on a lot of people. I tried it on people without eating disorders just to see, does this hold up? You know, I haven't standardized it. It hasn't become one of the things out there scoring for eating disorders, but, but I think people really, when looking at those questions and answering those questions and getting a score, I think practitioners can go, where did people score the lowest? And we can set some goals around that, you know, see if we can get your, your conscious eating score higher. And people might wonder why, why conscious eating, because I use intuitive eating and, you know, I really like Evelyn Triboli and Elise, I feel like they're colleagues and I've known them for, for years. And I, I have not, I don't have anything against intuitive eating. I think it's a huge thing that we shoot for, but I think it's part of conscious eating because when you, for example, meet someone full on in their eating disorder, it's very hard for them to tap into their intuition. When someone has anorexia nervosa, their intuition is, oh, you know, I'll have an apple for lunch. And so I think you can be a conscious eater on a meal plan. You can consciously follow your meal plan. And I think you can be a conscious eater later when you're more going on your intuition. And so that's what I try to talk about in there. Oh, I like that difference, that explanation of the difference between the conscious eater and the intuitive eater. And it can be a decision, especially early on, is to be conscious of it. Like you said, an apple sounds good, but it even goes back to your key too, like your healthy self. Sometimes it's so blended. The, yeah. the eating disorder self and the healthy self is it's like, no, I want an apple. <laughs> Like yeah, that's I'm what being, I want. I'm, for I'm following my intuition. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's why I say, let's look at these guidelines and see is a, about these conscious choices here. And if, if you need to have a meal plan because you don't know what to choose, you can be conscious about it and, and, and you can feel good about it. Cause I think some people mm -hmm. felt like I can't tap into my intuition right now, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's just a way that incorporates all of it, you know, and it's funny because Elise told me once on a phone call, she said, it's funny because we almost called intuitive eating, conscious eating. We, we, we really? went back and forth about what oh, to call it. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's a term, but I, I really want to make sure that I think it's valuable. I think what they do is valuable, but, and though they would even say themselves, you know, when they first wrote that it wasn't, they weren't thinking of people like with, they were thinking more of binge eaters when they first came up with this concept. And now they have, you know, additional, they have another book and it, yeah. it's, you know, so. It's been updated to include health at every size and, and all of the important tenets that we yeah. need to help people not focus on a number on the scale to be able to, to be conscious about it, to be intentional. Yeah. I love it. And I have to admit, I have not read the book. I've got it in front of me. I have, 
I'm so grateful that Abby, I know, I know, which is why, but, but here, Carolyn, having you on here, because we do ask people, what are your, what were your resources? Well, it was clear that you didn't have the resources. You developed them because you started in this field before there were resources. And then through our guests that your you have been a resource for so many people. In the beginning, you're right. I didn't, there was no International Journal of Eating. Dis- I mean, there was nothing. There wasn't. But over the years, obviously, when things came up, I devoured it. I, I went to the conferences, you know, I sat in the front row, you know, my personality. I have those characteristics that we know come with anorexia nervosa. You know, I try to, I try to be the you know, type A, I, I've mitigated them, you know, I'm, I'm better, but, but you learn how to channel them in the right areas. Instead of counting calories, you know, I try to do well at conferences and take it all in and, you know, yes. so anyway, so by the time the, I wrote the eight keys, there were a lot of things that, and over the years, obviously a lot of things that have informed my philosophy and 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 my practice like I knew all about intuitive eating when I wrote the chapter on conscious eating but I'd also studied a lot about nutrition because in my own journey when I didn't have anybody to go to I started reading nutrition books you know how that goes oh yeah patients I'm reading all this stuff but but ultimately I took enough in to to know I have to be talking to people about their food and I and I did family-based treatment. I mean, I brought families in and had meals with people. Just wasn't called that. Yeah. Well, I mean, because out of sheer, I I have to do something. So Mm -hmm. I, I, and I had meals with clients and I had them write down what they were eating and circle what they were purging. You know, I did all that stuff because just in the beginning, because of my own experience, but but obviously over the years, you know, I've, I've kept up with things like, you know, the research on temperament. It, it bears out what I experienced. I think all of us would say, oh, yeah, that bears out what we experience in our office. But I've taken that temperament stuff and in the book, and this is key three, and you talked about that, Abby, key three, because people say key three is it's not about the food and key five is it is about the food. So what do you mean? Well, key three talks about, you know, what are the underlying issues that are vulnerabilities or what we call risk factors for developing an eating disorder? And they're there. They're just not the only thing. So anyway, risk factors, temperament's one of them. And I looked at the genetics research. And when people were talking about temperament, I remember sitting in the audience and looking at the slides and, you know, they came up with, you know, anorexia nervosa, perfectionism, anxiety, obsessiveness. And I looked at that and I went, because I was already recovered, I went, I don't think of myself as perfectionistic. I I'm detail oriented, you know, and I don't think of myself as filled with anxiety. I I have high energy Uh, anyway, you know, or, or compulsion. I think I just have perseverance. I, I looked at these traits and I thought I'm trying to teach my clients how you're born with these genetic traits, but they can be assets or liabilities and, and how you channel those traits and how, and I teach parents, especially if they bring young kids, how, look at these traits. You can see it at a young age. How do you help them channel those in directions that are going to work for them? You know, one of my favorite things I learned from you, I mean, was 
basically, if you had an employee, wouldn't you want them to be detail-oriented or taking that trait and they would be perfectionistic? And I'm saying that in quotes, but taking that trait, all of those can be good traits, good parts. Yeah, because I remember thinking early on, how am I going to, I am who I am. How am I going to change this? I I wish I had had somebody tell me, you're going to, you're not, that's not going to be taken away. You're going to channel it in a different way. I felt like, you know, like I always say in in high school, I got anorexia and straight A's. I I didn't want to give up who I was. I mean, I felt proud of getting those straight A's, but I can see now how I needed to learn how to channel that temperament into ways that were for my best good, you know? And I think it takes away a lot of the shame someone with an eating disorder experiences that you don't have to become this different person. We've just got to come up with some new, even coping skills. Like what can we replace instead of your eating disorder behaviors? Yeah. Cause I, and I always talk about that replacement. I talk about how you gotta, you gotta give something else. Otherwise I think people feel like I'm going to be left with it. And you will hear people say all the time, I don't know who I'm going to be, what I'm going to do if I ask them how much time they spend on their eating disorder. And it's a lot and feeling like what's going to happen when that goes or who am I going to be? So, yeah, I think it's really important to think about what are we offering back? What are we helping them put in its place? That's really important that you brought that up. So great. I have to add to your, your comment about recovery recovered, I had a, a mentor, an old some an old friend whose granddaughter had been through a pretty rough bout of anorexia. And she called me the other day and said, I need to know because we're having this disagreement. Is she recovered? Or can can you recover from anorexia? And so I do think it's that 12 steps thought mm-hmm. process that people have is that once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And my answer to her was absolutely. If she doesn't have the symptoms of an eating disorder, whatever those are, mm-hmm. dietitians don't have to diagnose that. <laughs> That's the beauty of it. Yeah, we yeah. don't have to get into the into yeah. the weeds about it, whether it's disordered eating or an eating disorder. It's like what what do you want to change? You know what is what's happening in your in your body and your eating. Anyways, I was able to answer if she doesn't have she's she's recovered. She does not have an eating disorder. Yeah, I think it's interesting. First, it was the 12 step. And I was up against that for a while, speaking about it. The the, the resurfacing of that has come about with the genetic piece, because then they're saying, oh, well, if you have these genes, then you can't really recover. I, I don't see it that way. Uh, uh, and you already heard me say, I mean, if I still have those genes, you know, it, it, it's it's different how you, that's what epigenetics is, how you take genes and how the environment and the culture mixes with genes. And that is the expression of genes. (laughs) So I, I say to people, you know, my genes are the same, but I don't have an eating disorder anymore. And I think that that sent a little bit for a while of people saying, oh yeah, you really can't get better. And I think people thought, Oh, if we say it's genetic and all that, it loses some of the stigma. I have not found that to be true. And and, and the worst part of that is people coming to my office and saying things like, well, I heard it was genetic. So why bother? And I go, oh, wow. 
Oh, wow. Right. And you can understand that because if you think, well, if it's in my genes, I can't change that. Mm -hmm. No, no. Your genes are just your tendencies in these traits, but let's teach you how to use those traits in a way that's useful. And I already went over that, so I don't have to belabor it, but I think it's really important. And I think it is, I, I think it's really imperative that clinicians learn about that and learn how to help people see themselves. To me, it's giving people back themselves in a way that they can feel proud of it and they can feel good about it and they can use it, you know? This gives such, I was going to say, this just gives such a great perspective because it feels like there's always the argument of, can you really fully recover? Can you be healed from your eating disorder? But hearing you speak about it is just inspiring. I mean, I just don't have any doubts. I, I say to people who say, well, how people have said to me, well, how do you really know? Okay. Well, it's been over 40 years. I don't know exactly how many, but 45 something. And I say, do I have to die? And, and, and on my tombstone, she really was recovered because I can't, how do I prove, how do you know you're not going to relapse? Well, how do you know the sun's coming up tomorrow? I mean, I just feel like there's no pull. There's no thoughts. There's no tendency. There's no, I, I, I think here's the thing though. You, you can't pronounce somebody else recovered. I think the person knows when they know. And, and so I don't say, Oh, you're recovered now. The person comes to that. And I think there's a part of a point of time. And this is part of the reason why I have the two-year rule where you feel like, I don't meet the criteria like this person you were talking about, this mom who asked you the question. I don't meet the criteria. I'm weight restored. If if you have anorexia, let's say I'm weight restored. I'm not restricting my food, blah, blah, blah. But, but I like to see that time period go by where it isn't used as a coping mechanism. It's not a fallback anymore that you've spent enough time doing enough other things, battling enough life stressors that come your way that you it's not the default mode you know how our brains are we often have a default mode and and our brains you know the neuroplasticity there if we do something long enough like riding a bike or whatever it is it's pretty automatic it would be difficult for me to try to have behaviors of anorexia nervosa. Like I used to get up and wait as long as I could to eat. Now I told you earlier, I get up and I have breakfast and it it would be really hard to try to have anorexia again, you know, because your, your brain's neuroplastic and you've built new works differently. Yeah. Yeah. It works differently. New pathways. And I tell clients all the time, when they say it's so hard, it's so hard. I say, think about learning to play the violin. You pick it up and it's, Oh my God, it sounds screechy and horrible and nobody wants to be in the room with you. But over time, it's practice, practice, practice. And those neural pathways and your fingers will move and it will happen. And then it doesn't feel like it's hard, but that's what this is going to be like. Because people often feel this feels so bad and hurts and I don't like it. They need to know that with practice, your brain changes and your brain then helps you get better. You know, it does, it really does. It's much more motivating to tell someone like, this is going to be really hard, but you will make it. You will recover rather than this is going to be really hard and you're always going to be in the process of recovering. You know, I'm I'm telling you, I I mean, 
I I fought that battle in this country for a long time. And then when I started going and speaking in Australia, I think my first speaking tour was 2012 and it was about the eight keys book. They invited me over there. I had people lining up to talk to me, not just clients and family members, but practitioners saying, I don't, I recovered, but I don't tell anybody because here we don't believe that. All the clients from Australia who came to Montanito, they came to me and said, I was told that I had to learn how to manage this for the rest of my life. And that just made me feel defeated. If I have to learn how to manage this the rest of my life, that doesn't feel, what am I hoping for? And this is where I think the recovered perspective is so useful because, and I told you 95% of the coaches at CCI are recovered. I mean, they basically, people used to think, oh, coaches are going to let clients get away with a lot of stuff because they'll have so much empathy. It's the opposite. Coaches who are recovered or clinicians even who are recovered somehow get away more with challenging by saying, you know, that's BS. If I could, if I could do it, so can you. And, and they call them out more. And, and it's interesting. They get away with it more. And when Craig Johnson and I wrote, I think we wrote the first kind of scholarly, I don't know, published peer-reviewed article for Eating Disorder Review called Been There, Done That. And it was about the use of clinicians in recovery we looked at the at the advantages and disadvantages. And I think Craig would tell you that he was affected by that and, and realized the value and, and did realize what I was just saying, that people who are recovered not only are signs of hope and motivation and all that, but I think they they can challenge the person that look you have to be working on your issues while you're doing this underlying trying to find out why because you can get stuck on the why and and the why even if you figure out the why even if you figure out why you got sick that doesn't mean you're going to get better you have to work on the how and and i've treated people who never really knew and I'm a therapist, why they got an eating disorder, but they got better. I'm actually one of those people. I got better before I knew why I got sick. And then later I went back and started studying psychology and figured it out. Oh yeah, my, my, here's a good one. My dad left my mother for a fashion model when I was in my teens. It wasn't that much longer before I started dieting. And I remember saying, one day I'm going to fit in her dress because at 13, I couldn't even wear her clothes. I secretly tried them on once, you know, I mean, I had a lot of stuff and there were other things, my temperament, but I figured that out later. I think one of the things recovered people often do, but I think anybody can do it, but recovered people do it uh, kind of automatically is look, we'll talk about all that stuff, but how, how are you going to get through your dinner tonight? You know, you know? Yep. Rubber hits the road. And when you mentioned Craig, I was thinking of the the athletes too. Way back in the day, we would say, you can't do your sport. Well, now we know so much more and people need oh. to be able to do it along with the practicing. And learn, and learn. learn how to do it appropriately. That's right. That's right. Yeah, there's research out. I was telling my husband the other day, I just saw one of the IADEP talks uh, and, and I was reading some stuff about athletes and and about exercise and in and I always at Montanito, which I opened in '96 before there were any residentials. I had a fitness trainer and I had a yoga practitioner, and so they there were two different things. 
they were trained to use fitness in an appropriate way. And, and they didn't get to do it if they didn't eat their food. So by the way, talk about motivation. If they didn't finish their meal, they, they didn't go to the, to the, with the fitness trainer and, and, and just the yoga in terms of what we know now about it, strengthening the prefrontal cortex and helping the amygdala response, the, the, the emotional brain, you know, we've learned so much about, about those things now. And I did it, I have to say, based in the beginning on, on kind of on intuition and experience, you know, I had been in the field for, I had been in the field for about 15 years, maybe even more than that. Let me think. I don't know for a while before I, but before I even worked in the treatment center, because first I ran hospital programs and then I realized these, most of these people don't need to be in a hospital. They, they need to be in a home and they need to be supervised and they need to eat and keep their food, but they're not so sick. They need to be lying in a hospital bed. That's partly how Montanito started, you know, anyway, I'm probably off track. No, I think this just goes to show we have to have you back on. We could talk to you for three more hours. I'm I'm happy. (laughs) I'm happy. You know, there's not, there's not, it's true. Podcasts have become a big thing. They're helpful for people started during the, the, you know, COVID and, and I'm, I'm happy to figure out when to do it. Well, we'll take you up on it. I get excited talking about it. Well, we get excited listening to you. And I just would love for everybody listening to consider checking out the eight keys. It is really such a valuable tool to have in your toolbox as a practitioner. And so, Carolyn, if we were to, I'm going to ask you a wrap up question. So if you were to take yourself back to entering the field of eating disorders, what do you wish you would have known then that you do know now? kind of a loaded one. Yeah, it's loaded. I, I almost think uh, you're not going to like my answer, but I almost think it's good. I didn't know much because like I started talking about being recovered. I I always say I was out of the closet before I knew I was supposed to be in the closet. You know, I think not knowing much about the field, I just went for it. People say, Oh, you were so brave. I'm like, I wasn't brave. I, I actually was saying what I knew and what I thought was right. So, yeah, and I don't think it would have been good for me to know that I was going to become successful. Maybe that would have tainted me. So I'm going to say nothing. I'm not, I don't have regrets, you know? So, yeah, I think I'll say I'm glad that I kind of came into it with a blank slate. Mm, I love it. You know what? Actually, I think you may be the second or third person who has said that. Like, what's wrong with limping along? Yeah, And you were the first, you were in the front row of different places you read, you talked to people, you used your own experience, you came out as a person with a lived experience, and that allowed other people to talk about it. So I just appreciate so much your time with us today. Oh, thank you. And I really mean it. I, I'll come back. It's not that hard to just yeah. chat. I've- Got a hundred different things that we'll have to hone in on, right, Abby, (laughs) that we would next time. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com slash professionals.